Good morning. How is everybody? Good. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. I want to continue on the important topic of conversion that I've been preaching on the last few weeks. And there's two aspects, if you remember, of conversion. One is repentance. The other is saving faith. Uh, Today I'd like to look in more detail at repentance. And as we saw last week, this is what the Old Testament prophets preached. This is what John the Baptist preached. This is what Jesus himself preached. And now we're going to see that the Apostle Paul continues in that same line and preaches the same message of repentance and belief. So starting in verse 17 of Acts 20, it says this, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. This is Paul. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So here Paul is basically giving a summary of the ministry that he has done. He's getting ready um, to leave the Ephesians and he calls the elders together, and this is his testimony to them of what he's done for them and his ministry at large. And I want you to notice this in verse 21. Who is the message for? It says, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So who is the message for? The Jews and Greeks, which is how many people? Everybody, right? Greeks just being a term meaning non-Jew. So all are to hear the message of repentance and faith. All are to hear the message. And Paul says the same thing a couple chapters earlier in Acts 17 when he's in Athens. He gives a little sermon, a little homily at the Areopagus And then he says this in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay, so who's supposed to repent? All people. Where are they supposed to do it? Everywhere. Does that include you? Yes, you're part of the all people. So all are called to repent. Here's the thing. If salvation is done in any other way, why would the message be for all to repent? If it's by works, repentance isn't necessary, right? If it's by works, I just need to do more good works than bad works. In fact, if it's by works, then repentance really isn't necessary because that doesn't really do you much. If it's just a scale that's being weighed, then I can actually do those bad things as long as the good things I do outweigh the bad things. But the message that we are to give is to repent and believe. And this message goes to every single person. That's what we're commanded to. And guess what? 
What is the standard that God uses to judge all people everywhere? It's his word, and it's the standard of perfection. Have we met it? God does not have two standards. He will judge every single person that's ever lived, is living, or will live by the same standard. It is the same standard. God does not have two standards. He has one. This should strongly encourage us to be diligent about evangelism. Because if God has one standard, then whether people have heard the message of repentance and believe, they're going to be judged the same way people that have heard it are going to be judged. Because God has one standard. And Acts chapter 4, I want you to see it. We're in Acts, might as well turn there. Acts chapter 4, starts in verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Okay, because Peter had, had healed this crippled man. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then notice what he says here in verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now who is, G who is Peter addressing here? Who is he addressing? He's addressing the council. And these are Jewish men, learned men, wise in the Old Testament. And what is he saying to them? He's really saying, you're not saved because salvation comes through Jesus. And if it was just a works-based system, I mean, then these Jews, these, these council of men were probably, probably fine. Not really. But they would have thought they were. But no. The salvation is through Jesus. And there has to be a repentance and a belief in him for a conversion to occur. So we ourselves need to get that message out. We need to get it out with our coworkers. We need to get it out with our neighbors. We need to get it out with our bosses. We need to get it out with our friends. We need to get it out with our family. Let's talk about repentance for a second. Here's the definition of repentance, as one theologian put it. It's a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. But here's the challenge when we talk about repentance. A lot of people think that repentance is simply confession. It's simply confession. But confession alone is not repentance. Just telling someone your sin, just like you'd tell them like what's on your birthday wish list, um, that's not repentance. Okay, that's just factual information. And simply stating your sin is not repentance. Okay? So when we talk about repentance, there's kind of three aspects in much the same way as there is with saving faith. There's three aspects or three points to it. And one of the things when, we, when you talk about it, I mean, confession is good, right? 
Confession is good. We're commanded to confess our sin. And one of the things when you talk about sin and unrepentant sin is to not conceal it. We stop concealing sin. We bring it into the light. Look at Proverbs chapter 28. It says this in verse 13, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Okay, so confession or acknowledgement of sin is really, you might call it the first step or the first part of repentance. But there's these three parts or aspects. One of them is a change of mind, an intellectual change. You change your mind on what? On your view of yourself, on your view of God, on your view of sin, and your view of Christ. Here's how Paul put it in Philippians 3. Turn there with me. In verse 7, But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Is it, there's a change of mind there that happened with Paul in his conversion. Listen to Psalm 51. This is David. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you... You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Again, a change of mind. So there's the intellect is involved. You are changing your mind in regards to God, self, sin, and Christ. But there's more. There's a change of affection. What we might call the emotion. The emotions are involved. There's a true sorrow for sin. Not because you got caught, not because now it's cost you something, but because you've committed sin against a holy God. Look at 2 Corinthians 7. 2 Corinthians 7 says this in verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. So there's a change of affections. And there can be a true sorrow for sin. There can be a false sorrow. Sometimes our sorrow for sin is because we've messed up and it's going to cost us something. Maybe it's going to cost us our job. It's going to cost us financially. It's going to cost us a relationship. We have sorrow. The Bible calls that like a worldly sorrow. Um, a godly sorrow, a true sorrow, would be that we are grieved because we realize we've committed an assault against God himself. And we've sinned against him. And we've let him down. And that we are wrong in what we have done. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was younger, I'd, you know, you'd, you'd do something and you, you messed up and you got like that horrible feeling like in your stomach. Like you are in trouble and you are going to get found out, and something bad is going to really happen to you, like a spanking. <laughs> a lot of times, though, that feeling for me as a younger kid, and I hated that feeling, right? It was like a little conviction, a little conviction. But what was, what, was, what was that horrible feeling about? 
that I was going to have to pay a penalty, that something was going to happen to me, all right? Um, that, that, I, I wasn't really sorry. I was sorrowful. If I was sorrowful, it was because I, I got caught or was about to get caught. My sin was going to find me out. And I was sorrowful because I knew there was going to be something that was required of me. I was going to be grounded or I was going to get a spanking. But what about a true biblical conviction? A true sorrow. I actually think it feels somewhat similar. But you're sorrowful because you realize that this God who loves you, this God who sent his son for you, this God who let his own son bear your sin, this God who sent his son and, and bore the sin and was crucified for you, and you've basically taken advantage of that. And you've basically saying, no, God, I choose my way, not your way. And so you're kind of flippant about it. And you're grieved over that when you realize it. You're grieved over your sin. There is a true sorrow. But the Bible says there can be two types of sorrow. There can be the godly sorrow, or the earthly, or the worldly sorrow. Jeremiah shows us something similar. Look at Jeremiah chapter 3. This is what Jeremiah says, the very last verse of chapter 3. Verse 25. He says, Let us lie down in our shame and let our dishonor cover us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God, we and our fathers, from our youth even to this day, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. All right, there's emotion there. There's conviction. There is a godly sorrow over what he and his fellow brothers and sisters have done. And here's my question for you. Are you as bothered by your sin as God is? Are you as bothered by your sin as God is? Are you as grieved by your sin as God is? Because your sin grieves God, and we need to repent of it. So the first is a change of mind. The second is a change of affections, which would include, instead of the focus on the self and it's all being about you and what's best for you and, and what's, what can you do to get the most out of life, now the affections are more bent towards Jesus and towards the Father. So there's like a switching of not just the intellect from one to the other, but the switching of affections. Okay? You love God more than you love self. You love God more than you love any person or thing. The affections have changed. Then the third thing is a change of will, which we might call volitional. The will is, is, is volitional. So you can, you can will to do something. When someone says, oh, I couldn't help myself, well, that's really not true. Okay? You can always help yourself. You can always help yourself. <clears throat> so you can will to do something, and you can will to not do something. So it's an intentional turning away from sin and turning to God through Christ to seek forgiveness. Look back in Acts chapter 3. This is a, a beautiful verse. It says... In verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. And what's the result? Verse 19, repent therefore 
and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Okay, so repent and turn. Repent and turn. Same thing in Acts 26. We're going to see that same word used. This is Paul testifying before King Agrippa. He says in 26.19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So there's a change of will, a turning from one thing, to another, a turning from your sin and a turning to God. So the entire person, the mind, the affection, the will, is radically, completely, and fully changed. It's affected. Now, you guys ever seen those like commercials on TV where it's like an infomercial or something? It's like some uh, weight loss program and they show like the before and after pictures? Or maybe it's like some workout, you know, routine they want you to buy, and it's the before and after pictures, all right? Like, the difference is like night and day in those pictures, right? The before, the after. Guess what? So it is with the believer. It's night and day with the unbeliever and the believer. Fallen man before conversion is lost in darkness, in bondage, a slave of sin, a servant of Satan, and on the path to hell. What about righteous, believing man? He's found. He's in the light. He's walking in freedom. He's a slave to righteousness. He's a servant of Jesus, and he's on the path to heaven. And the contrast is so huge that when Paul compares believers and unbelievers in 2 Corinthians, he says, what does light have in common with darkness? Could there be an even greater contrast? No. Light, darkness. There's no middle ground. You can't do like half a repentance or a feigned or a false repentance is what you end up with. Repentance has to be complete. It has to be full. It has to include all three of those things. God doesn't give us any options. There's either real repentance or no repentance. And if God is showing you certain areas to repent of, you have to repent. You have to change. You have to turn. Because when it comes to God, and when it comes to being like Him, the call is to holiness. Be holy, because I am holy. So, there's really no partially holy, or a little holy, or somewhat holy. It's holy. Be holy, because I am holy. Now, I remember someone telling me years ago, um, you're into religion a bit more than I am. And they, you know, said they were a believer. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sold out, friends. And it's called being serious about your faith. So it's called taking up your cross no matter the cost. It's called counting the cost and realizing it costs you everything and more. And you say, I'll pay it. That's what I'm talking about. So when we talk about our thoughts, 
when we talk about our desires, when we talk about our actions, the question before all of us, me included, is are they pleasing to the Lord? Now, maybe people are in here are committing some gross immorality. I don't know. The Lord knows. He knows. And if there is anyone here, you need to repent. But maybe, for many of us, it might not be a gross immorality. But maybe our sins are sins of omission. Things we should do and aren't doing. Are you sharing the gospel? You are called to do that, correct? Correct me if I'm wrong, but we're called to share the gospel. If we're not doing that, we are not walking in obedience, and we need to repent of that. True? We're called to love our spouse. Right? If we're not doing that, we need to confess it. We need to repent. We need to have the affections. The will. We need to have those things changed. And we need to walk in repentance. Look at what Colossians 3 says. So some of our sin, as you're turning there, some of our sin is wrong desires, evil desires, the Bible calls them. Did you know your desires can be evil? They can be. All right? Desires aren't neutral. That's what the Bible says. We can have evil desires. We can have wrong thoughts. And having those over and over again, don't pat yourself on the back just because you don't act on those things. Because God wants you completely changed. Not just actions, but heart, thoughts, the mind, completely regenerated in his image. Here's what it says in Colossians 3. Put to death, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. That's pretty serious, friends. The wrath of God is coming on account of these things. And he's having to tell the Colossians to put it to death. Look what he says. And these two you once walked when you were living in them. But then he goes on. Now you must put them all away. So apparently they had knocked out the first part. That's great. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Okay, But there was more. And I think this can happen with us too and apply to us. Now you must put them all away, he says in verse 8. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. What are we supposed to do? Put it to death. Not put it to sleep. Not give it a nap. Not lock it away. Put it to death. Listen, when you're dealing with sin, you have to take drastic action. If you just try to coddle your sin or in a little, make it a little pet or something like that, it will eat you. It will turn on you. You have to put it to death. Look at what verse 9 says. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. I was reading that yesterday, and I was like, isn't that sad that Paul has to tell the Colossians not to lie to one another? And then I thought to myself, I know believers 
that lie. And isn't that sad? That it's still true 2,000 years later and that I have to stand here and tell you to repent of that if that's what you're doing. Lying to one another. That is horrible. Because you know what you're saying when you lie to someone? You're telling them you're not worthy of the truth. And I have skin in the game and I would rather save my own skin than face the consequences. I'd rather be selfish and skirt out of the consequences. I have much more respect for people when they own their sin, when they own when they've messed up. And that's what I encourage with my children. When they've messed up, I'm like, just, just own it. Don't try to lie about it. Don't try to skirt it. Don't try to excuse it. Don't try to water it down. Like, own it. Because that's what believers do. When they've messed up, they own their sin. And then they deal with it. And they repent of it. But own it. Our tongues should be fountains of truth. Fountains of truth. Every person who knows you, every person who knows you, should know, hey, when John says something, I know it's the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And if your character or reputation was ever questioned, <clears throat> the fact that you had never lied and were always truthful would be a testament to what you were now saying as you defended yourself, as you tried to give clarity to the situation. But you can destroy that with just one lie, with, with, with just one half-truth, with, with just one partial truth, with one little white lie, with a little bit stretching of the truth, and you can ruin your testimony to believers and unbelievers. And it disgraces God that you do it. You need to repent of it. Our fountains, our tongues are fountains of truth, not cesspools of garbage. I was painting, <clears throat> I was painting the outside of, of, the, of a swimming pool over the summer, and they had some, uh, this, these, these people I was working for had some landscaping rocks around the pool. Little tiny, you know, one-inch rocks. And I wanted to make sure I got down and painted the whole outside of the pool, so I'm like clearing the rocks away, and I was like, I probably should use some gloves. But like the gloves were far enough away that I was like, I mean, it doesn't feel good, but I'm just going to keep clearing the rocks away. So I, I cleared the rocks away, cleared the rocks away, and you know, did it around the entire pool, and it was fine. Um, hours later, my fingers are killing me. And I look down, and I literally have blisters on every single finger. Every single finger. Blisters all over them. And I was like, what in the world? I mean, at the time, I mean, it didn't feel good. But sometimes I think we can do things that seem to have no effect or little effect, and, oh, we're fine, we tell ourselves. But the truth is that some things have a bigger impact on us than we realize. Some things have a bigger impact than we realize. And listen, we need to love God enough. That's the emotion, that's the will, that's even the intellect. We need to love God enough to acknowledge those things and get rid of the bad ones and add the good ones. Listen, I want all of us to avoid the sin of the Israelites. Well, they had a lot of sin. But there's one term that God uses with them that I want you to see. Look at Exodus 32. This is the story of the golden calf. 
in Exodus 32. And here's how it starts in verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Isn't that an interesting term? Stiff-necked? The phrase, it's somewhat common in the Bible, it's a farmer's metaphor of an ox or a horse that will not respond to the rope when tugged. Right? I know most of you don't have oxes or horses, but you can picture it in your mind, right? Wanting the animal to go one way, maybe your dog has done that. You're tugging on the rope. And what is it? Nope, it's got that stiff neck. What's the idea there? Stubborn. One version translates it obstinate. And the idea is that it's difficult to yoke. It's unruly. Today, we'd say hard-headed. What's the opposite of that? Submission to the will of God. A submissive spirit. And we see this in Second Chronicles 30. Here's what he says in verse 7. Second Chronicles 30. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation, as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary. Yield yourselves. That's the idea. Yield yourselves. And let me address the children here. Some of you are stiff-necked when it comes to your parents' instructions and requests. And you need to repent of that. And employees here, some of you are stiff-necked with your co-workers and bosses. And you need to repent of that. And married people, some of you are stiff-necked with your spouses. And you are stubborn and rude and dismissive and condescending. And you need to repent. Because there's no place for any of that in the life of the believer. Okay, the believer's life is a life which walks in repentance. He's confronted with his sin, he receives it, and he responds accordingly. Well, let's talk for a minute about the fruit of repentance. If repentance is real, it will be seen in a person's life. But here's the thing. I don't want you to confuse repentance with the fruit of repentance. And many people confuse those things. Okay, Someone today, right here, could be in sin and repent of it before the Lord and truly have repented. Right? I mean, if there's conviction right now and you want to repent of your sin, you can do that. And you don't even have to walk outside those doors to repent. Because repentance is about what? The intellect, the will, the emotions. The fruits of repentance show us that the repentance was real. So a lot of times people 
kind of conjoin those two. They, re, they conjoin repentance with the fruits of repentance. Um, that's not the case. Otherwise, uh, when I give a gospel message, um, no one could be saved until they actually went out and did something about it. And then what does that do? It turns salvation into works. Okay? So the fruits of repentance is different than repentance. Um, let's look at one ex- just one example in Luke chapter 3. So this is John the Baptist. Verse 7, He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Okay, so they've repented, and then he says, bear fruits in keeping with the repentance. You've repented, now show it. Show it that it's real. And the crowd's like, hey, okay, what do we do? And then he actually gives them some concrete things. Verse 11, he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. These are all people that participated, that were baptized by John. His was a baptism of repentance. And then he's saying, This is what your repentance looks like as you follow it out. This is the fruits of repentance. So he says, 13, Collect no more than you are authorized to Soldiers, verse 14, asked him, and, you, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. That's the fruits of repentance. And earlier we read in Acts 26, 20, it says, Repent and turn to God, performing deeds, keeping with your repentance. Okay? So you, you show the works because you have repented. It's evidence of a true repentance. And listen, while conversion is a one-time experience, okay, the initial turning from sin and turning to God, exercising a trust in Jesus, repentance is something that we as believers should continue to do daily turning away from sin, and turning back to God. There's the initial act of repentance when you're converted, but there's the ongoing act of repentance in your own life. Okay, Renouncing sin, confessing it, acknowledging it, asking for forgiveness, turning away from it, and turning back to God. Being sorrowful over your sin. And if the last time you repented was 20 years ago, or 20 months ago, or 20 weeks ago, or 20 days ago, then you're not walking in repentance. Because you and I have sinful hearts and we have sinful thoughts and we have sinful desires and we have sinful actions and we, we, we do those things and we have to repent. We have to forsake it. We have to acknowledge it and turn away from it. What does it look like in practice? It's the acknowledgement and confession. I have sinned, Lord, in this area, name it, and it is wrong. I am grieved, Lord, over my sin. 
sorrow over your sin. And Lord, I turn away from it. I turn away from it. I renounce it, and I turn to you. That is the picture of repentance. And I'm going to have the worship team come on up. They're going to play a song, and I'd like to have just time for all of us to repent, to get right with the Lord. If you want to come down closer to do that on your own, that's fine. You can do it where you're at. If you want to get on your knees, you can do that. But I'd really like for each one of us to search our hearts and see if there's any unconfessed sin in our life, anything that we need to acknowledge before God, anything that we need to be grieved over where we have fallen short and repent of it and turn back to the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you are a merciful God, that you don't stand by with the rod to strike us out of wrath. For you are good to your children. You have a rod of discipline that you use graciously and lovingly. And you're not out to get us. You're out to get us back to you. So give us hearts of repentance, Father, all of us. We, we fall way short, Lord, way short of the mark. So I ask for a spirit of repentance for each of us, Lord. Whatever we need to confess before you, whatever we need to acknowledge before you, and whatever we need to turn away from, whatever we need to renounce in our life. Lord, bring the spirit of conviction now onto us. A true spirit of conviction that results in a true repentance. Do your work, Lord.